I love this place. I lit my candle for uh, Betsy Carlson. And this story uh, has a lot to do with, <clears throat> with Betsy. She passed away from breast cancer. But uh, if we're going to talk about women, we have to talk about women's friendships. And I met Betsy on an airplane on the way to Denver. Her airplane had been uh, delayed, and then she had been booked on three different flights and then bumped from three different flights. Uh, Betsy was uh, mid-50s, and she was getting her PhD in, uh, she was health disparities. She was a nurse practitioner. But at that time, I didn't know who she was. She was just a stranger in the seat next to me. And neither one of us felt like talking because I had had a few delayed flights myself. When uh, I saw that she was reading a book about uh, behavioral health, I couldn't resist because my work has been, for the last few decades, the challenge of helping people change behaviors in ways that will promote better health more compassion, and the way I look at it is I help bring humanity back to places where it's gone missing. A lot of the database uh, approach uh, to public health has made us really, really smart IQ-wise, and yet the solutions that we come up with are fractured and don't create the sort of results they're supposed to. When you look at uh, a neighborhood and you can see the statistics of the, the poor neighborhoods, you know that there are problems with diabetes, there's problems with stroke, uh, heart disease, drug abuse, uh, teen pregnancies, all of these things and each one of the specialists in their little silo looks at the problem, analyzes it, uh, comes up with some idea of what the cause is and then works to correct that problem. So, for instance, you end up with long brochures about what you're supposed to eat and not supposed to eat. Um, and um, you may have had someone give you advice about what you should eat and not eat. Perhaps your doctor. Um, everyone who found that that advice was profoundly helpful and changed your behavior, could you please <laughs> raise your hand? Sometimes the solutions don't have much to do with the problems. And the wisdom that lives in stories is a different kind of wisdom than the smart decisions theoretically, that come from analyzing the data and addressing the problems. Story is one of those words that has a meaning for every single person who uses it. And these meanings are as similar as the five blind men each describing the elephant. You can look at story from a screenwriter's point of view. You can look at story from a parable point of view. You can look at story 
uh, in terms of, if you're a scientist, you may call it anecdotal reasoning, and therefore you have to kick it out of the thought process because that corrupts your understanding of what's actually going on. My thing is that if it corrupts with, if it adds emotional reasoning and we are trying to be real, real smart and pull that emotional reasoning out, I don't know where we think we're going to use this solution. But it's not going to be with humans because we humans use emotional reasoning. So storytelling is a lot of different things. And I'm just going to talk about the way that I've been looking at story in terms of social justice. So Jesus was a pretty good storyteller, right? And if we look at stories, they're the oldest form of, of capturing wisdom in human history. Um, even the cave drawings, you know, how to catch a bison, you know, which would be its, uh, that would be the title if you wanted to get high uh, frequency number of, of uh, retweets. Um, and as we have been so focused on uh, being smarter um, and being more competitive and using data to uh, to analyze situations, we've actually caused ourselves to become further and further away because that's not what analysis is. It's being objective, right? Unplugging your emotions, looking at that situation, analyzing it, and using logic. And that's really valuable. I'm not saying that's not valuable. However, it's not where emotion lives. It's not where heart lives. And it's not where wisdom lives. Because wisdom incorporates humanity. And we humans are both good and bad. We are both smart and stupid. And, I mean, I, frankly, uh, one night when I had seen a gorgeous sunset in Hawaii, I got up really early the next morning and went to the same place so I could see it rise. It wasn't until I felt the sun on my back that I realized. So it's that both and where we find these, these really valuable uh, lessons. And... I look at story as the encapsulation of the both and with the wisdom intact. If you tried to summarize it and analyze it, you would end up like, well, is, it, is she smart or is she stupid? And it's not either or. Jesus, big storyteller, I think all of the world's great religions could be divided into... Um, and I don't mean the religions could be divided, but each religion has two camps in it. And uh, one camp is all about the dogma, the rules. This is not that place. This here, you're, you guys. But, but you know what I'm talking about, right? And then you've got what I would call your mystics. And mystics are the storytellers. And certainly in his time, Jesus was not one of the rule guys with his wagging finger. And the mystics 
create a personal and alive relationship with truth. In a way, rules just shut down your thinking. So uh, the Pharisees were trying to corner Jesus and say, isn't it wrong to heal on the Sabbath because it is against the law of God to work on the Sabbath? And Jesus told a story. Instead of saying yes or no, well, if your ox fell in a well, would you just leave him there to die on a Sunday? And the, these, uh, in Jewish tradition, the Midrash stories had already taken care of that, you know, well, it's specific, it depends. And so, no, you wouldn't leave your, actually, I was in Alabama, and uh, one of the guys said, yeah, it's the ox and the whale. And I thought he meant, like, the squid and the whale, the, the, um, the movie. But that story is something that you, we feel the truth of it when we hear it. And we've lost some of the common sense uh, is another word that we use for this, this sort of understanding the truth. Uh, we call it being realistic. Well, when, when Jesus told this story, what he did was he took people from outside the problem looking in and he was able to take them inside the problem to experience it with their hearts their minds and their bodies and their imagination and the answers change the answers change from what it looks like from the outside to what it feels like from the inside and these are much more sustainable answers because they they create that personal relationship with the mystery that we know makes things work that shouldn't work. Any of you who are married understand that there's some mystery that goes on in terms of, of you know, there's tons of conflicts, there's lots of reasons, you know, to, to argue, and yet it's love that creates the solutions that are just bigger than the problems. So Nasruddin is a character. Do you all have Nasruddin stories, or do you say Nasruddin different? Nas Nasruddin. Uh, Nasruddin is a character that appears again and again. These stories that are over a couple thousand years old, I believe, have big tea truths. We're surrounded with little tea truths all the time. People come up to us and say, you want to know the truth? I'll tell you the truth. And, you know, that's important information to have, but it's not, it's not that sustaining, you know, uh, truth. So uh, Nasruddin, Nas well, I'm just going to say it my way. Okay. Nasruddin was asked to speak to a village three weeks in a row. And on the morning of the, of the first day, he came to the front and he said, My beloved people, who amongst you knows that of which I speak? And the people said, we are poor, simple people. We do not know that of which you speak. And he threw his robe over his shoulder, and he said, well, then there is no need of me here. And he walks right out. They waited. He didn't come back in. You know, so the next week, there's more people in there. Master Dean has gone sh shopping for camels. He's gossiped in the marketplace. He's done everything but sit down and think about how his words would touch 
hearts and the minds of the people. And again, he says, my beloved people, who amongst you knows that of which I speak? And this time the people stood up and they said, we do, we know that of which you speak. And Nestor Dean said, well, then there's no need of me here. And he walks out. The third week, the people in the village have a plan. Because as you expect, Nasruddin comes right back in front of them again and says, my beloved people, who amongst you knows that of which I speak? And this time, half of the people stood up and they said, we do, we know that of which you speak. And the other half said, we are poor, simple people. We do not know that of which you speak. And this time, Nasruddin said, well, if those of you who know, we'll tell those who don't. There's no need of me here. That explains what I do for a living. Because the wisdom is in the room. And the most powerful form of wisdom I have ever found is the form of a story. Because story has the emotions that go with it. And when you come up with answers without emotions, uh, you don't end up with a whole lot of action. You have a lot of good ideas and good intentions. So anyway, I met Betsy on this uh, airplane, and we started talking about how dumb a lot of the interventions were, like this diabetes brochure and that sort of thing. And we came up with a plan. I had just started working on storytelling, and uh, Betsy told me about this woman named Dr. Carolyn Wang, who in China had to do a needs assessment. Are y'all familiar with that term, needs assessment? That's, that's, a, that's the ultimate outsider looking in, you know, sort of, let me tell you what your needs are. And because there was a language barrier, they innovated and decided, well, let's just hand out disposable cameras. It was back in the day when, you know, we didn't have cell phones. Let's just hand out some disposable cameras and let these women document what their life is like. And then when we can see where the needs are, then uh, we can come in and help. They didn't realize that by putting the power into the hands of the people that it was transformative in allowing people to decide for themselves what their needs are. The second thing that happened is that they gathered these images, and these images could travel to different places in a way that a 60-page uh, research document could not. So she and I decided that there was the poorest community in Houston is Acres Homes. You can't get a pizza delivered there because the pizza delivery people won't come in there. There are big piles of tires that are as high as a house that are dumped there because if you take the tires to the real dump, you have to pay. So other people in Houston would dump their tires uh, in, in abandoned lots in Acres Homes. There's terrible problems with diabetes, with stroke, with heart disease, with teen pregnancies, with drug abuse. And every single uh, professor with their spe specialty had a solution. We wanted to ask them what their solution was. So we went in there and we, we designed 
photo story, which was a combination of photo voice, which is what Carolyn Wang had done with the, the needs assessment, but we also wanted them to participate in coming up with solutions. Because all of those five problems that were top of the line at MD Anderson, all of those five problems have something in common. And that mystery of why we don't take care of ourselves or we don't take care of our neighborhood is embedded in, for me, and this is not what I said in the uh, grant application, but for me it's about love. It's about whether the love is flowing in that community or not. So I went in naive thinking all we need to do is get people to tell their who I am, why I'm here story. Because I've noticed that if you ask someone who are you and why are you here, they go, ooh, you know, start to think about it. Which is a reflective process and can be transformative. I was big on transformation. So we did, did this process and 40 people went out and took 12 pictures each. They all came back with their pictures. They offered two of the pictures to describe what Acres Homes is. Who are you and why are you here? And we had pictures of those tires. And we had pictures of crack houses, Sylvia, um, when we first did this exercise, said, well, I'll just take a picture of, you know, the crack house down the street. And once we were sharing our stories, Sylvia said, I didn't realize it, but in saying I was going to go take a picture of somebody else's house, I could have just taken a picture of mine because there's wax on the floor and burn marks. And that means that somebody's using crack. In, in the house. She had her six-year-old daughter that was walking past that every day. And the stories began to flow. And I learned something really important about social justice work. Apathy is there for a reason. When we can't stand the pain, we stop caring. And in my ideal transformation. I wasn't paying attention to the fact that if I'm going to get someone to, to become aware again of the problems around them, then I'm going to have to handle the pain that comes with it. Sylvia started to sob. Justin, who's about 20, was slumped in his chair, just draped over it like only a six-foot-three teenager you know, young man can, um, and uh, he was then mocked by the Baptist minister who was also in that room, wagging his finger, talking about, you know, we all need to become a committee of one. You may become familiar with some of these, these uh, uh, patterns. I don't know if you've ever been in a volunteer co uh, committee, but Group process is, is not something we're actually good at. So as he's wagging his finger, I realized that, that his story, uh, he was talking about people with $150 shoes. And I could tell Justin knew exactly whose shoes he was talking about. And they start to get tense and the conflict starts to rise. And, and you know, this committee of one. 
And Justin is just about to leave. We've already lost a couple of the teenagers. And I asked the, the Baptist minister, I said, I think that I might be able to help uh, you become a little bit more effective in communicating with the youth. You said that's something you wanted to do. I'm really good about that uh, bait and switch thing. And um, he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, I think the, the group may be able to help you. And I said, if you want that. And he said, well, yeah, of course. These are little cheap psychological tricks you can use out in the world. Um, you ask permission first before giving someone feedback. And so he uh, said, okay, what? And I asked the rest of the group to stand up and if they would model uh, uh, Reverend Logan's uh, last statement. And so he looks around and there are 39 people going, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think he would he, he'd take it like a champ, which is what he did. But then he started to ask Justin, okay, what is this rap music about? You know, why do you people listen to that foul uh, rap music? And Justin said, well, okay, one of my favorite rap songs is about how the good die young. And, you know, I think about that because... Uh, I'm looking at people I went to high school with, and the ones that are having fun are not the ones that, you know, finished high school that are going to college. And I don't understand why I'm supposed to be good when the best job I can get is at McDonald's. And there's, you know, not much chance of, of moving ahead. The complexity of these stories makes it feel like possibly as you're listening to me, that things got out of control. But sometimes that's what it looks like when we come together. I don't know if you've been to a family reunion, but they're not terribly organized. And yet, it's that sense of connection that brings us back. And what do we do with a family reunion? We start to, to share stories. The process of these stories in being heard and listened to actually transforms the, the story that we believe. So when, um, when we were looking at these pictures, they had, basically we used the five-dot voting process. So we had 80 pictures, and we had to reduce them down to a manageable uh, size. And so everybody has five dots, and you can put all five dots on one, one picture, or you can you know, sep separate them out. We had our are 20 uh, pictures. And the dialogue that ensued was a little bit like chaos. Uh, one, of, one of the issues was whether you had gotten permission forms signed by everybody you took pictures of. Uh, if, if she was like, that's a crack house, I don't think they're gonna f fill out a, a permission form. And yet there's a cohesion when we share our stories, we begin to think about who we really are and why we are here. And those stories began to coalesce in a way that we supported each other through the pain. We held in the container of uh, the community the idea that everybody's story matters. And that gave us access to the mystery. There's a difference between charity 
and solidarity. And one of the things I've learned is that letting people tell true stories, firsthand eyewitness accounts of their experience, validates their personal point of view in a way that they will then listen to somebody else's personal point of view. And that's part of the magic of story. At the, in the end, Sylvia, who had been a child care worker, minimum wage, living in a crack house um, where her brother um, smoked crack regularly and sold it out of the house, she had an epiphany. And I think it was finally being able to feel all that pain and rethink her story. And she went back to school, and she now works as a TSA agent. And uh, the house has been cleaned up. And um, I'm not sure where the brother is now. But we can only accomplish so much. Uh, Mary, one of the women who uh, was asleep most of the time during this process, I found out was asleep because she had a morphine pump. Uh, and she had such pain. And it's not just physical pain that you get a morphine pump for sometimes. That she just stayed, you know, disconnected. After the program, she went and got the, the morphine pump removed. And she started a block nurse program where each one takes care of the other. And people watch out for each other. You end up with far fewer emergency room visits when that happens. Justin joined the governing board uh, for uh, his local civic club. I had given him a copy of my book, and he sent me an email saying thank you. And in that, he said, this is the first book I've ever owned. And so it transformed me, too. I learned a lot. There's a lot of um, more objective structural aspects about using story. But the part I want you to remember is that these big T truths, if we simply share them in a way that encourages other people to share their own, we're going to find solutions that don't look like the problems. This group was able to come together in solidarity. And while their actions were unpredictable, their actions were their own, and they had gone from a sense of powerlessness and apathy, which, you know, I'm not going to even deal with this. I don't know if you guys feel that on a regular basis. I certainly do in my own life. It's like, I don't want to learn anything else. Please stop. And the only way to find our bearings in this world of too much information and too much specialization is to go back to that one story that um, Barbara was talking about in the very beginning. All of us have a little hologram of that one story. And then every story we tell about what's important to us is a hologram of who we are. And when we can bring those together, we end up seeing the whole elephant. And when we see the whole elephant, we see all sides at the same time, we come up with different kinds of solutions than if we all stay in our little areas. and think up ways to fix those people. 
The beauty of using story in social justice is that it brings together a sense of solidarity. Betsy uh, was going to write up this, this uh, uh, experiment that we did in 2000, uh, but her breast can cancer came back and she passed away. I haven't talked about this particular form of using storytelling for social justice since she died. The reason I'm talking about it now is that there are lots of qualitative researches, researchers, and there's a woman who's written a book called Working with Stories that's that thick, and she calls it Participative Narrative Inquiry. And it's a really powerful process, and it's really complex. But ultimately, you have a chance to do participative narrative inquiry wherever you are and wherever you see a problem. You have the opportunity to ask somebody to tell you their story of the problem, and you can share yours. And what you may find is in that connection, a solution comes to you. And I think it comes from the mystery. And I think it comes from the love that we create when we share each other's stories. So go, go ask people to tell you their stories and go share your stories.